Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 124 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Jordan Furlong about his new book and why law has become a buyer's market. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Today's podcast is sponsored by Spotlight Branding, which wants you to know that having a new website designed for your law firm doesn't have to suck. Spotlight Branding prides itself on great communication, meeting deadlines, and getting results. Text the word WEBSITE to 66866 in order to receive a free website appraisal worksheet. Today's podcast is also sponsored by FreshBooks, which is ridiculously easy to use and packed with powerful features. Try it now at freshbooks.com slash lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. So today's episode with Jordan is about kind of how the market dynamics of the legal industry are shifting. Um, He has a thesis in his new book about how kind of buyers or clients are taking control of the dynamics of the industry. And as part of that, I think he and you advocate for lawyers and small law firms thinking more like businesses and thinking about clients as buyers and things like that, that we'll get into in the episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the topics that I think is interesting to talk about then is something we've brought up a few times in the past about kind of identifying your ideal client or crafting personas of your ideal clients so that you can have a story of who you're looking for and how to find them. And a couple weeks ago, you went on a little bit of a tangent <laughs> online in a, in a chat room about some of the pitfalls of thinking about client personas in too narrow a way. And I thought it'd be interesting to chat for a little bit about your thesis. Yeah, I so I was staring at a post that I had written about client personas and how you can use them to create a picture of your ideal client that you can then build your practice around. And I've talked about it in seminars, I've talked about it on the site and and probably on the podcast. And I, I kind of want to dial it back a little bit because what I realized very quickly is I'm I'm looking at a persona and I'm realizing that if I built a marketing campaign around this person, I would miss out on a ton of people who didn't look like her but that would have been amazing clients for a firm that wanted to serve that person. And I I realized that personas create blinders. When you have too detailed of an idea of your ideal client, you're, you're putting on blinders and you're excluding a whole bunch of other people who would also be ideal clients, but aren't that close. And, And I guess it's worth saying like a persona is a very specific sort of design term. And the idea is that you create a person. You give them a car, a laptop, a phone. Name um, and age. A name, a, a picture, cut a picture. And, and in doing that, every time you add a characteristic to a person, you actually exclude everyone who doesn't share that characteristic. Yeah, and in marketing exercises, it's often thought to be valuable as far as kind of bucketing the segments of your population so mm-hmm. that you've got a Susie and a Ron and whatever, and you can market to the exclusive New York (laughs) high-income Susie, and you can market to the stay-at-home dad, Ron, who watches TV or whatever it is. But what was interesting is in the conversation that kind of spurred this a few weeks ago, you were having a discussion with someone in the design community about how 
his book about thinking about personas happened to kind of randomly only include personas who were men. And (laughs) you raised the issue with him and he was like, yeah, man, shit, I didn't see that. I'll fix it. And then we got actually he was he was more like, yes, I I noticed that I totally agree with it. And and personas are bullshit. And I'm pulling it out of my next edition. Yeah. and, And so that then led to a conversation about kind of the bias inherent in personas. And I think one of the traps that it's important to not get too caught up in is in this context, bias absolutely can include things like race and gender and orientation and disability status. But the bigger point is that they can be biases having nothing to do with kind of demographic identity. It's just a matter that the more narrowly you say you are looking for a type of person or a specific person, the more you're going to miss people who would be a great fit for you, but don't have the particular job or industry or educational background or skin color that you said Ron and Susie were. And so the it's probably worth mentioning. So the, the book is designed for use by Lucas Mathis. And I emailed Lucas and I'm like, Here, here's what I just realized. And he wrote back and he was like, yes, I totally agree with you. And I hate that chapter. But personas are so deeply embedded in the world of technology design and, and marketing companies that when he tried to push on this, his early reviewers pushed back so much that he was like, ah, fine, I'll just include it. But I think he called it a dumpster fire of a chapter that he wants to get rid of for his next edition. And, and it's exactly that, that when you build too detailed of a persona, a lot of those details probably aren't relevant. Like if your persona is a white man, and it's not the whiteness or the manness that is important... But a woman might have different characteristics that if you build your marketing campaign or your business around a white man, you might inadvertently put off signals or exclude somebody who is exactly perfect for you in every way but happens to be of a different type of person or they live in a different place or they use different you know, products, whatever. And so I guess I just think it's important to highlight that personas can be problematic. And and Lucas, the Lucas Mathis points out that the other problem with them is that they're just imaginary people. Like if you've imagined a person that does not actually resemble a client, then you can build a marketing campaign and a product for that imaginary person and no real person is ever going to be interested in it. Yeah. And so then that then kind of begs the question of, so then what? And I think there are probably a number of answers about alternatives to how to target users, how to find an audience, how to market without adopting formal personas. Mm -hmm. I certainly think that a component of that is figuring out what common needs and value propositions of groups of people are so that it is very easy to say that if you are a small business lawyer, that new businesses in e-commerce have different needs characteristics than existing family-owned businesses in manufacturing or whatever, Um, and that you can group together needs and solutions there that absolutely inform marketing campaigns and how to target people without resorting to narrowly identifying the demographic details of who. Yeah, and Lucas Mathis, his point is throughout his book, and and now that we've highlighted this, it's obvious to me that this chapter is in some ways an, an exception, and personas are sort of an exception to the idea that, no, what you need to do is, if you want to represent early stage startups, go talk to people who are early stage startups Learn in in great detail, in as much detail as you can, what kinds of problems they have and how they go about trying to solve them. The things that they tried to do before they tried to talk to a lawyer about their problem, all that. Learn 
as much as you can about the people who you want to have as clients. And then if, if building a persona is a helpful shorthand for you, fine, you can make one. Um, but, but it's no substitute and it's completely backwards to start with a persona, but it's no substitute for actually knowing and having deep knowledge about the kinds of legal solutions that you want to provide and the problems that those are solutions to. So I don't know, for me, uh, where I, I, I try to think about things from a design perspective pretty often, that was kind of like a mind blown kind of a realization. And if you're not thinking about things from a design perspective, then maybe you ought to. Since law is a buyer's market. Oh, do you see what I did there? Yeah. And which is, I mean, that I think this is fundamental to my conversation with Jordan Furlong. And uh, now I'm going to shut up and let you listen to it because it was an awesome conversation. And I think you'll enjoy it. Hi, I'm Jordan Furlong. I am a legal market analyst, speaker, uh, author, and consultant uh, based in Ottawa, Canada. So I think I'm your token Canadian for today. <laughs> and uh, I'm really happy to be here with you today, uh, Sam, on your lawyer's podcast. And you are one of a select group of people who we've had on the podcast twice. Oh, wow. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. So, is, is, is that like Saturday Night Live? Is there like a five-time member club that you, you know, Paul Simon shows up and so forth? Yeah, I, I mean, at episode 500, let's look back and see. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Right on. So tell me more about what you're doing right now. I know that uh, you personally went through um, some changes in your strategy over the last, I don't know, maybe year. Um, and now you're pretty focused on Law 21, I think. That's right, yeah. Um, I've, I've focused now uh, pretty much fully on my, my Law 21 business, which uh, which has a, a number of uh, elements to it, I guess. There's uh, the bulk of what I do, which is uh, speaking engagements. Uh, I'll speak to law firms at their retreats or uh, legal organizations uh, at annual conferences, state bars often, and courts and law schools, people like that. And And my job there is essentially to tell people what is happening to the the market for legal services, what's going to continue to happen to it, and what I think this particular group should do in order to adapt and, and respond uh, to, to all these changes. I also uh, keep my hand in in terms of doing some consulting and some uh, writing. I've, I've written a series of white papers and reports recently. And, uh, and I guess a big thing for me recently is that uh, earlier in the spring, I published a book uh, which is called Law is a Buyer's Market, Building a Client-First Law Firm, um, which has met, uh, I'm happy and, and very pleased to say, with a, a very positive uh, response in the market. You know, uh, and I want to talk about the book for the remainder of the podcast, but before we do that, you know, I think it's interesting. You uh, are a bit of a legal futurist, but, mm -hmm. uh, but a, half or better of what that involves is trying to accurately describe and help people think about what is happening now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you can't yeah. begin to forecast anything until you identify the trends that are shaping what you're trying to talk about in the future. Yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, uh, and I will occasionally get introduced as, at a conference, uh, you know, Jordan Furlong series, you futurist, and I'll get up and I'll say, you know, I, I'll quibble slightly. I think I'm a presentist <laughs> yeah. uh, because because what I'm here to say is that all these things I'm talking to you about aren't down the road. They're not coming down the pipe. They are here. Um, my, my, my interest uh, is in number one, sort of establishing with people, look, this is, here, here's the reality check that you need in terms of what's happening to the market in which you operate. And, uh, and, and I'm a futurist insofar as if, uh, I'm giving you an accurate assessment of where we are, and I certainly hope that I am, then you can use that to plot a course forward. And I think, and I think every organization, whether you're a law firm or, or you're whatever, 
entity or organization you, you, you're running within the legal market, you gotta be cognizant of, of what's going on, uh, in this environment and be able to make changes accordingly. And, and, and I've had this conversation with people at bar associations and, and nonprofits and law schools to say this is not just about the lawyers. It arguably, it's about, uh, these other supporting, uh, elements of the market as much as it is anything else. Well, you know, and I guess, I sometimes wonder, it feels like law is particularly unwilling to acknowledge the trends that are currently shaping it mm. um, and lawyers. And I wonder, do you, do you feel like that's true or is it, do I just feel like that because I am so embedded in law and the business <laughs> of law and, and really everyone is unwilling to acknowledge the changes that are shaping their own future? Well, I, I know I think there's definitely something to it. I mean, well, I, I, I sort of get like a two-stage uh, process when talking to lawyers about these kinds of things. The first is not so much an unwillingness, but an, uh, an unawareness. Um, is to say, oh, really? That, really? That, that's happening? That's mm-hmm. going on? Right? And, and you can quote the stats at them and show them the, the trend lines. And it's like, oh, okay. So, so a, a lot of it is basically introducing um, new information, like, you know, opening a door to a, a previously um, undisclosed room, turning on the lights and saying, check it out. Well, I suppose that makes a lot of sense because most lawyers are really focused on their clients and their clients' problems and don't spend a lot of time trying to think about law as an industry. Absolutely right. I mean, I've, and, and I've had one occasion, you know, you, you don't get one-liners off very often, but on one occasion, you know, uh, several years back, I had a lawyer criticize me and say, yeah, well, but you don't practice. You don't know what it's like down here in the trenches. <laughs> and I said, no, and I respect what you're doing, but I have to tell you the view from the trenches isn't really all that good. <laughs> you know, and, and what I'm trying to do is sort of stand up a little higher and say, you know, here's what's Here's what's across no man's land. There's a reason why the general isn't in the trenches. Yeah, exactly. Uh, good and bad reasons both. So um, I guess I and, just and, promoted you to general. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> um, and and then there's the the second part of it, which is the, which is the unwillingness, and that's the resistance. And and I, I talk about this in the book a little bit. It's I, it's not fair to single out lawyers specifically to say, oh, lawyers are so you know ridiculously resistant to change. Everybody is resistant to change. Every organization, every individual, this is, it's, it's the human condition. Um, but the way I put it is that lawyers are just uncommonly good at it, <laughs> you know, because we're, we're very good at saying, oh, well, you know, yes, I understand these, these are very important trends, but they don't apply to my firm. They don't apply to my practice. Right. It's it's distinguishing unwelcome precedent, right, mm-hmm. which is something we learned to do on day one of law school. So so that's really the, the thing. At that point, it becomes less about informing people and more about helping them get to a point where their resistance and their barriers are lowered enough that they can at least consider it. They can at least think about what they want to do. Uh, and, and sometimes that takes a while because, yeah, the resistance sometimes can be uh, quite intense. Well, fortunately, I think the listeners of our podcast are uncommonly uh, awoke to the changes that are shaping the world today um, and law practice in general. And so let's just assume that they're open uh, to, to taking a real good, objective, hard look at law practice. And so um, before, I, I, was, I could feel myself getting tempted to like go off on tangents and dive into the middle of the subject <laughs> of your book. But um, let's kind of start at the beginning. And what are we even talking about? What is, what is a buyer's market and seller's market? And, and what's, what's that all about? Yeah. Well, the, the thesis of the book is that for as long as we've had the the environment for the purchase and sale of legal services, and you can go back as far as you like on uh, with your definitions on that, it has been a seller's market in the sense that all of the power, all the knowledge, 
uh, a tremendous degree of asymmetry favored the sellers of services, which is to say uh, lawyers. Um, we had pretty much exclusive access to the knowledge, the information, uh, the, the the portals into dispute resolution and, uh, and 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 you know legal recognition. The keys to the kingdom, right? We we, we had that, and nobody else did. Um, our our clients and our would be clients certainly didn't have it. Very low levels of general legal information, not just amongst consumer uh, clients, but also even at the corporate level. Um, and, and then also we had, and still continue to have, at least in the United States uh, and Canada, uh, pretty much near absolute exclusivity over the market. Um, it's, you know, and people will say, I, I call it a monopoly. People say, well, it's not a monopoly because look at all these, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of lawyers. How can it be a monopoly? I say, yeah, but it's hundreds of thousands of lawyers who are all doing the same thing mm-hmm. and all doing it the same way. And all, you know, there, there's, there's no... There's no competition in terms of what if I want to get my legal services in a different way uh, or um, under different circumstances or in different conditions. And that option has not been available. So um, you, you throw all these elements together, and that's a seller's market, one in which the buyers have very little real influence, very little real power. They have to more or less take whatever uh, the sellers of services are going to give them. And that has begun to change. Uh, I think you can stretch the change process back about 10 or 15 years, but obviously, uh, since the financial crisis, that has accelerated considerably. Oh, so you think it was changing anyway? I think it was changing anyway. We were, t- we were talking about it and writing about it, uh, for some point b- before this. And, and a fair bit of that. I mean, you can, you can go back, you can find articles in the 1980s and the 1990s saying hmm. the billable hour must die, right? <laughs> you know, and, you know, we, we've been, we've been chattering about it for ages. Um, and you began to see around the turn of the millennium, um, a, a few shifts, but it wasn't until uh, the financial crisis. I think everybody seems to, to trace it back to that, and I, and I think that's that's fair. That um, we began to see a whole bunch of trend lines converge. One is that, of course, uh, tremendous economic pressure on consumers of legal services of all kinds. And this, I think, especially for solo and small firm lawyers uh, who serve the consumer market, this became very evident. But even for corporate law firms that. We're told by their in-house counsel, the, you know, we just don't have the money to spend on you, right? It's not going to happen. My budget's been frozen. It's been cut back. Um, my, my, my staff have been eliminated or whatever. But around the same time, we began to get a growing uh, series of options available to, to, the, to purchases of legal services. And you, and you had this in terms of what I would call uh, substitutes for lawyers. You had in, uh, technology coming along, which could to, and, and this, is very much the case uh, year over year uh, in an increasing fashion. Uh, technology. Let me, let me stop you for a second, and mm-hmm. because as soon as you say substitutes for lawyers, mm-hmm. I can I can feel uh, an entire <laughs> industry of uh, of bristling hairs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Say more about that. And you explained it well in your book, but I want you to take a moment to explain sure. um, when you talk about substitutes. What do you mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and it is a very loaded term. And I should emphasize I'm using it here in a very kind of value neutral sense. Um, in economic terms, a substitute is any product or service that so closely resembles another product or service in terms of its costs and its outcomes and its procedures that it is really immaterial, whether you use one or the other. And in the book, I, I use the example of say, McDonald's and Burger King. And if you consider them to be completely interchangeable, and I think you should, then, you know, if you want fast food and if the closest Burger King is like across town or they've just jacked up the prices on the Whopper, you'll go to McDonald's. 
because it's all the same to you, right? Now, mm-hmm. now that's a perfect substitute. There are no perfect substitutes for lawyers. I am seriously doubtful there ever will be. I see no reason why anybody would want to develop one, right? As I'm fond of saying, if, if you could develop a perfect substitute for a lawyer, you'd have a lawyer. We've already got those, right? That's not, <laughs> that's not really necessary. But Well, and maybe what you want, maybe ultimately you don't want a Big Mac. Maybe what you want is a salad, mm. and there's a fast food salad place across the street yeah. that will give you a healthier, cheaper, or maybe more not cheaper uh, option that you're equally happy with. Exactly. because And that's a great way of putting it, Sam, because it comes back to the outcome. What is the outcome you want as a consumer? I want to get fed, right? I want, I, you know, it's lunchtime, I'm hungry, I want to get some food in my stomach. Oh, there's options other than McDonald's, Burger King, and what Whatever. Awesome. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so what I talk about in the book is that there are partial substitutes, which is to say products or services or people that can provide some aspect of what lawyers do to a level or a degree that is, again, effectively indistinguishable from how a lawyer does it, such that if the lawyer is a more expensive option, and, and lawyers are always a more expensive option as a general rule, then you will use the substitute, right? And that's where we get into... In other words, the client is happy at the end either way. Yeah, absolutely, right? Because again, it's about the outcome, right? What's the result? Uh, electronic discovery, right, is is the perfect example of that. We only ever had lawyers to do discovery of any kind, and, and all of us who at one point labored in those small rooms with the boxes full of documents remember discovery very well. And here mm-hmm. comes electronic discovery, which is that raised to a you know power of 100, um, but now here, here comes, uh, software and there's tons of software uh, applications and programs that will, that can do electronic discovery faster and cheaper and increasingly better than lawyers do it, right? That is, you know, so, so that, that, that's zooming past substitute into full scale replacement, right? This, this yeah. is simply a better and, and improvement. In, yeah. In that case. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but you're, but, but again, we're, we're seeing, these popping up all over the market. We're seeing little, you know, one item, and, and the way I describe it in the book is that if you're a lawyer, you, you've got 60 billable hours a week, whatever, I'm making, making up a number. Um, and along comes a software program, and it can do something that you I don't do. Know, maybe it. we'll call it LegalZoom. Uh, exactly. Just, just pick, <laughs> pick a name at random. Actually, yeah. I'll, and I'll, I'll give you some thoughts on LegalZoom in a moment. Um, yeah. It comes along, and what takes you an hour to do it can do in a few minutes and it does it just as well. And that's, that's not a stretch. There's a lot of products on, this, on the market that can do that right now in contract, in the contract area alone, in terms of drafting, mm-hmm. reviewing, analysis, and so forth, right? So what it means is, as a lawyer, you are not competitive to that particular uh, substitute, to that particular entry into the market. You're not going to be able to offer your services at the rates or in the manner that you've done in the past. In, in practical terms, that's, that hour is gone. Now you're down to 59, right? Well, okay. Well, 59 is not fatal. 59 is still pretty good, right? But then here comes, here comes something else to take away two hours and something else to take one and a half. And after a while, you just find that your inventory is getting dismantled piece by piece. And one of the things that I say to lawyers, and I've written this in a couple of columns for lawyerists, is you got to take a good hard look at your inventory as a lawyer, especially a lawyer serving consumers and small businesses, and say, what precisely am I selling? What precisely are people buying from me? And who else or what else is out there also offering the same thing, at least even in the ballpark of how I do it? Because that is the competition you're up against. That's a comp- that is a partial substitute for you. It's a substitute for that one, one small aspect of what you do. But it's not just one or two of these, it's an army of them. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're up against as lawyers right now. We need to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, um, I want to raise 
a new vocabulary word that I learned from your book. A couple of words, credence goods. And so when, when we come back, I want to talk about credence goods. We'll be back in a minute. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted. So when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Spotlight Branding is an internet marketing company that doesn't suck. Most solo and small firm lawyers have had at least one truly miserable experience with a web designer or internet marketing company. So if the idea of launching a new website for your law firm makes you queasy, they get it. Spotlight Branding prides itself on excellent communication with its clients, being responsive, professional, respectful, and delivering what it tells you it's going to deliver. Spotlight Branding works exclusively with solo and small law firms. Services include law firm website design, email newsletter management, social media marketing, and more, all designed to make your law practice more profitable. And Spotlight Branding is currently offering a free gift to our listeners. Simply text the word WEBSITE to 66866 and receive their free website appraisal worksheet, an easy way to evaluate your web presence, identify what's working, and spot opportunities to improve. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three client projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to Modern Life as a Small Firm Lawyer. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four days faster, see when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBook is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. Okay, Jordan, I teased the idea of a credence good. Mm -hmm. And this was a term that I learned uh, from your book. And I love it because it encapsulates this idea that clients are too dumb to understand <laughs> whether or not they've gotten good uh, legal services, which is like law practice is a very paternalistic thing, right? Our mm -hmm. ethics rules say you give the client what they need, whether or not it's what they want. Mm -hmm. Um we consider that to be our duty and we are selling, we, we say, services that the client cannot properly evaluate on their own. They have to trust us. And I, I think that's what a credence good is, is you have to trust me that I'm going to give you the right thing and I'm going to charge you an enormous amount of money in order to do that. Yeah. I, I think that really, that, that, that expresses a lot of it. I mean, I, 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 would, I would not myself personally say the client's too dumb uh, to understand it, but it, it may be that the client doesn't have reference points or the, uh, the, the, the easy capacity to assess the value. I mean, a credence good is, is something, again, in, in economics terms, it's, it's a good or a service 
for which you as the buyer, you don't really have the way to assess its value even after it's been delivered, right? Um, you know, and, and like the classic example of this in the legal context is a last will, right? Uh, you, you know, regardless, no matter what happens, you as a buyer, you will never know <laughs> if it was any good, right? Your heirs. Your heirs will. Yeah, your yeah. heirs will for, for better or for worse. Right, but uh, but, even, but chances are the lawyer is going to die before the client anyway, so they won't, they won't be able to make any intelligent decisions on that basis. Uh, I suppose that's true. That's 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 a, that's a possible <laughs> legal malpractice. But but even on a more basic level, if you want to immigrate to another country, right, and you receive all the advice you want, and you get there, and you get to the border, and you turn back because you know, work. Oh, okay. Well, now I know it's no good sure. to me, right? So, uh, and and that's part of the the, the risk of, of legal services. A lot of the times, you don't know if what you've got is any good until the rubber hits the road, until you're in a position to actually deliver on it. But you've pointed out that that's actually only true for some things. Like you've yeah. just identified two really good things where you can't really tell until you get to somewhere further beyond the representation. But mm-hmm. um, it's really easy to figure out if a document review was accurate mm. or not. Um, it's really easy to figure out whether some other legal services were accurate or not. If you get a lawyer to draft a contract, you're going to find out very quickly whether or not it mm-hmm. was a good contract or not in some cases. Yeah. Um, it just depends on the thing. And, and so um, I think the, your point was that, um, first of all, that only applies to some legal representation yeah. and, and legal issues, not all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and, and what it really comes down to, and this goes back to the whole thing, and, and you alluded to this, the, the gap between lawyers and clients, uh, the, historic, the historic gap, which in the past has been canyonesque. Um, as I'm fond of saying, you know, this is why the courts developed the idea of fiduciary duty, because there was such dependence mm-hmm. on the part of the client on, on the service provider, because the client doesn't know. And the client can't be expected to know whether or not they're being treated fairly or properly or, or what have you, or they're getting good, getting good services. But, uh, and, and I don't think that gap will ever close entirely, but we are seeing the purchasers of legal services becoming more knowledgeable and more sophisticated. There is, there and is, they have options. Yeah, they have options. This is the thing. They have knowledge. They have options. Um, you know, it's the old uh, thing from the detective stories, means, motive, and opportunity. Right. Um, they, they have knowledge they didn't have before. As I'm fond of saying, there is more accurate legal knowledge available now to the world than there has ever been. And it's entirely down to lawyers and law firms producing this information and blog posts and newsletters. You could accurately argue that a lot of the information that people have about is irrelevant, but mm-hmm. um, nevertheless, they have it and they're going to act on it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the thing of it is, that they, but they, they have access not only to um, primary and, and secondary sources of legal information, but I think more importantly, they increasingly have access to legal experience, right? Mm-hmm. I can go on to LinkedIn, I can go on to Facebook, and I can say, um, there's this lawyer I want to use. Has anybody used him or her before? And what's been your experience? This is what mm-hmm. AVO, really, fundamentally, this is the gap that AVO identified in the market. People want to know, you know, what is it like to use this particular lawyer? You know, is, you know am I going to get good service? Am I going to get a- accurate quality? Whatever the case might be. Um, it's one of the reasons why I keep saying, if there's one, you know, elephant waiting outside the room or one camel waiting outside the tent, it's Amazon. Right. Because mm-hmm. Amazon, at the end of the day, for me, it's not it, it's important, not so much because it is the world's uh, department store, which it is. It's also the world's rating service. 
right? And, and you know... The, the, for literally almost everything. For literally almost everything. If Amazon ever decides we're going to get into lawyer ratings, look out. Um, yeah. so, so that's fine. So, so again, and, but you can, you can rely now on, and this is, again, down to a lot of the collaborative software we have because of the Internet, but now people have information and knowledge. So, you know, it's for, for ages. Like, you and I go into um, a car dealership, right? And I walk in, and I can say to the salesperson, I know exactly what I want. I know what the manufacturer's estimate price is. I know what the, you know A, B, C, and D. Let's do the transaction, right? Um, whereas that wasn't possible 20, 25, 25 years ago. We are increasingly getting to the point. We're not there yet, but we are heading in the direction where people are going to come to see lawyers with that level or something approaching that level of self-awareness, self-knowledge of their own situation. I call, I call it hmm. self-navigation, being able to make go down some distance towards your own legal solution on your own accurately and, and safely. Which many people are doing whether or not we want to acknowledge it. Oh, yeah. I mean, Aaron and I have talked about this a little bit before that, uh, you know, we talk about an access to justice gap, mm. but what we're, what we, people are usually talking about is an access to lawyers <laughs> gap. Yeah. Because there is actually no gap in the number of people who have their legal problems solved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100% of legal problems get solved one way or another. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not in a just way, um, but they get solved. People do it themselves. Um, they end up in jail. Um, they end up losing money. Whatever, whatever they get solved one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, so, self navigation is. We, we maybe even should consider that the rule, not the exception. Honestly, I think so. And I remember writing a, a post. In fact, this may have been even before I began blogging. I may have written this as a magazine editorial. Um, I said there there are courts, and at the time there's only a few. But now that's I think it's standard. There are family law courts in Canada and the U.S where the majority of represent of, of litigants are self-represented. And now I think that's overwhelmingly the rule pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. And at the time I said, what has happened is we're in the middle of a default switch. The default setting is if you go to court, you go with a lawyer, right? And it's unusual to be self-represented. We are now, right now, we've, are, we, we've passed that Rubicon. We're over that hill. It is now unusual to be represented by a lawyer in family court. And we're going to start seeing more of that mm-hmm. in, in a whole bunch of areas. And, and, and when people's default expectations, their assumptions get changed, that is, that, that, that's game changing for, for a market, right? You know, one, one, we didn't realize this as lawyers. We didn't realize how powerful it was that people assumed you needed a lawyer to do something. Yeah. And when they stopped assuming that, rightly or wrongly, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but when they stop assuming that you need a lawyer to do stuff, then your whole world changes. And that's where we are as lawyers right now. The assumptions that clients and would-be clients have been making about the legal system and about lawyers for decades and decades those assumptions are falling away right now. So let that sink in for a second. <laughs> um, <laughs> now that lawyers have to prove their value it yeah. is essentially what you're saying. Uh, it, it is now, it, it isn't just a, a buyer's market in the sense that um, people can make intelligent decisions between legal options. Um, they, they're making decisions whether or not to even hire a lawyer in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so how, how should a firm approach that market, especially, especially the, the small business, um, consumer market that most small firms and solos are faced with? I, I think I would start with a couple of realizations. Um, the first is, is to lose any semblance of the belief that our clients need us or even want us. Right. There's there, there's 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 um there's an assumption that borders, if it doesn't actually cross over the border and set up shop to arrogance 
um, that we are just so essential, right? You know, the, the thing, it, it drives me nuts. I get this every so often. Lawyer says to me, oh, sure, people can go off and deal with their own thing on their own. You can hire the legal zooms, et cetera. But when that all falls apart, you'll come back to me. And, and one lawyer actually said this to me, ka-ching, more money in my pocket down the road. <laughs> I've heard that more than once. Yeah. Oh, you know, and I just want to, I just want to, you know, well, what I want to do is, is separate. But what I'm going to say to that person, that is incredibly, it is unprofessional it's immature, it's unhelpful, and it's unbecoming of a lawyer to talk that way. Um, mm-hmm. But but setting setting all that aside, the the larger issue that that you're up against in that situation is your the market that you want to serve doesn't necessarily have any interest in you, right? And is not obliged to go to you anymore. I mean, even just literally today, uh, I was looking over a, a post I wrote. And someone commented on it and said, well, the key is education. We have to educate clients about, about our value. It's like if you have to educate people about the value of the services, then you're, you're already, you've already lost. Yeah. You have already and, and that's lost true, the but that's not the, that's not the strategy. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, and to the extent there's any value there, I've been pushing bar associations to do this for years. I said, you want to do something for your lawyers, build a publicity campaign around how uh, a lawyer produces value because your individual members can't do this, right? But at the end of the day, it's, it really is about, um, it's understanding where your clients are coming from, you know, what, to, what are they looking for? What do they need? And, and the second thing to kind of realize is not only do, do our clients who would be clients feel no particular inclination to deal with us, a lot of times, they don't even know that what they're dealing with is a legal problem, right? This, yeah. this is the work that uh, Rebecca Sandifer at uh, University of, uh, I want to say, uh, Illinois Champaign-Urbana has really been groundbreaking uh, yeah, totally. in, in this area. That was an amazing study that she did. Yeah, it is. And, and, and folks, if you haven't seen it, look it up because what it's basically established is we talk about the access to justice gap and the people and unmet legal needs. But there is a huge category of simply unrecognized, unrealized legal needs. Mm-hmm. People are suffering through something, and they don't realize, A, it's actually a legal issue, and B, there's actually a legal remedy. Yeah. So you want to educate people on something. Educate them on that, right? Educate them on, you know, if, if you're going through this, there are solutions and remedies available to you, right? Well, and the other piece of that, and, and I don't want to dwell too much on it, but the other piece of that, which is one of my soapboxes, is that cost is one of the minor reasons why people decide not to seek legal help. Mm, Um, You know, I I think cost is an important thing in the way people make decisions, but it is not the primary mover when it comes to why people don't hire lawyers. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's in the, it's in the mix. Um, but it, it does not, I mean, and to the extent it's in the mix as often as, as not, it isn't even the quantum necessarily. It's mm-hmm. the unpredictability. It's yeah. the fact that I don't know when your meter starts running. Right. So, so again, so to go back to the question, question you actually asked, now, what do we you do? Know, mm-hmm. uh, what, what do you actually do? Um, as lawyers, uh, it's a larger advice, of course, is like several chapters in the book, but well, I'll tell you one thing that I think about is like, I, you know, the, the problem with the seller's market isn't. Um, I mean, yeah, it's great. You, there's basically just money for the asking. But the problem is um, th- this this traditional legal model of one lawyer, one client, I bill mm-hmm. by the hour. I j- that's a boring way <laughs> to make a living. I mean, yeah. honestly. And, and it turns out to be a hard way to make a really hard way, really challenging emotionally, financially, whatever. It may, it's a hard way to make a decent living. Um, oh, some is. lawyers are successful, but lots of lawyers just toil away 
and they just make you know an, a, a, a middle class income off of that kind of work. Well, yeah, and and at the heart of these practices of struggle like that is again, as you allude to, this sense that. Whatever comes my way, I as a lawyer need to do, right? This, this is about the lawyer services. And, and, and so the first thing I say to law firms is stop thinking of yourself as a law firm. Think of yourself as a legal solutions firm yeah. because that's what people are coming to you for. No one's coming to you to buy the law. No one's coming to you to buy your time or your hours or your expertise. They could not care less about any of these things. They have a problem. They want a solution. And they want the easiest, simplest, shortest, most convenient, accessible way to get there. Which is either going to produce one of two reactions in in people, right? Uh, oh, my God, that's not what we do. This is what lawyers do. Or the other is, wow, like that opens up a whole new playing field of possible ways to serve clients. Um, and including ways that have never been done before. New client yeah. service models, new, I can innovate, I can be an entrepreneur, I don't just have to sit in a chair and behind a shingle and do things the way everybody else has done. I think that's super inspiring and exciting. Um, and it, it I, I think the change to a, a buyer's market actually kind of frees lawyers to be more creative and, and have more interesting professional lives. I think it's exactly right. And, you know, it brings back, you know, the very old poem, right? Two, you know, two men looked through prison bars, one saw mud, the other stars, right? It's mm -hmm. how are you going to deal with the, the, the challenge, uh, the, the situation, you know, the end and somewhere, anytime there's a challenge, there's usually somewhere in the vicinity an opportunity as well. So, so I think if you, as, as a provider of legal services, whether you're a sole practice or practitioner or you're running a firm, whatever the case might be, if you're, liver, if you're offering legal services, then reorient everything you do around what is it that people are coming to me looking for, right? What do they, what do they want? What do they need? What are they asking about? And a lot of the times, they don't even necessarily know, right? They may yeah. come to you saying, I want A, and if you sit down and listen to them closely and attentively, it's like, actually, what I think you need here is a little bit of A, but a whole lot of B, and, you know, in six months' time, you're going to need some C, um, right? And, and a lot of that is intelligent listening, but it's also being able to analyze where the client situation is at and, and what they need. So, and, think, and thinking beyond legal problems to oh, problem absolutely. problems. Yeah. Absolutely. It's the listening part. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced. I mean, I, I don't have any, I don't think there are any stats on this. Uh, it, it's possible, but I am sure that a huge, a huge number of lawyer client relationships go right off the rails at the first meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, at, at, at the initial retainer, when the client comes in and starts talking about what they want, and at some point the lawyer's going to interrupt them. And I saw a study once that said the amount of time between when the client starts speaking and lawyer interrupt, the lawyer interrupts them is seven seconds. Um, <laughs> which I can totally believe. Um, right? At some yes. point the lawyer's going to say, oh, okay, well here are the issues. A, B, C, D, and E, and F. Right? And they're going to list all the legal things. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And the client's like, I haven't finished telling you my story yet. I haven't finished telling you how upset I am that this has happened to me or how unfair. It's like, let them talk, let them vent. They're looking for someone to listen to them and to pay attention to them and care about them. And I'll tell you, consistently, the best lawyers, the most successful lawyers I know fit that description exactly. A lot of them are listening to this podcast right now saying, yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's, that's why well, it makes and, the difference. And let's be clear, um, any computer in the world can be programmed to not interrupt someone for seven and a half seconds. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's not, not that hard, right? No. You know, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> but, um, so, so again, the, 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 the so, uh, in terms of what you then do as a law firm to say, okay, I get it. Uh, I, I'm a legal solutions firm. How is it different from what I do right now? 
then I think you start looking around and saying, what are the best tools available to me by which I can provide solutions? And that doesn't mean or doesn't necessarily mean what's the artificially intelligent whatever robot you know, nonsense um, you know, that I can, I can deploy in this case. A lot of times it's, yeah, sometimes there's a software program that can generate, say, the agreement you need a whole lot faster and a whole lot more efficiently and effectively than you can. I think you should use it. And, and here's the test. If, if you were the client and you knew this was available and you knew what worked, would you want the lawyer to use it? And if mm-hmm. the answer is yes, and invariably the answer is yes, go ahead and do that, right? Um, although, although I will say, and, and I uh, absolutely, but um, nothing about being innovative requires you to adopt technology tools. Mm, um, no. You know, Conduit Law is one of the most innovative firms on the planet, um, and the most advanced technology tool they used was email, as far as I was able to tell when I talked to Peter um, before they got picked up by Deloitte. Yeah, um, exactly. So okay, it was, they had a, an, an innovative business model, but yeah. it wasn't like everybody was walking around with their own personal AI. So. No, absolutely. And, and, this imp- and this opens up the, the second very important part of it. It's the operations. How are you mm-hmm. actually creating and delivering the services that you've got? Right. And, and it could be something as simple as process improvement and, and running your business more, you know, more, not just more efficiently, not just in more streamlined fashion, but with fewer errors. The whole lean law thing is basically about that. How do we reduce waste? How do we reduce elimination and errors and redundancies and all these things? And find, find ways in which you can do that. There's tons of information about that. And anybody can, any law firm, any practice of any size can benefit from that. Right. So, so it comes down to, I am running a business. Yes, it is a professional business and we have professional ethical standards. I get all of that, but we are running a business and there is not a business in the world that gets to be bloated and inefficient, uh, and, and to take its own sweet time doing it, whatever, whatever way it feels like. Except for law firms 10 years, 15 years ago. (laughs) And, and that period, that period is done. I am absolutely convinced of that. That period is over. We are now in a period where we must be responsive. We have to be prompt. We have to be quick. But what we mostly have to be is attentive to what people are looking for and zeroing in as quickly as possible on a solution and delivering them that, that solution in ways that make sense to them. That's what being a lawyer is going to be about from now on. I, I guess um, maybe as by way of uh, moving towards a conclusion here, I think that one of the one of the things that you're hinting at here is that lawyers need to be willing to engage with ideas that they haven't traditionally engaged with. Yeah. Because um, ordinarily, you go to a bar meeting uh, or or a, a solo and small firm conference, whatever, and you say, you know, I've been thinking about um, I've been thinking about doing flat fees. Mm-hmm. And usually, what happens is nine out of the 10 people that you're talking with will tell you that they tried it and it failed and it's a terrible idea and it Mm. goes against their client's interests. If you're lucky, there's another person there who has tried it and maybe is even billing flat fees and then you can have maybe a drink with them later and have a productive conversation. But that automatic defensiveness that Mm. that's not how we do it, it won't work, is one of the most toxic things that I see. And it doesn't mean that you have to adopt everything. But I I feel like... a willingness to engage with new ideas or even just to other ideas uh, is is probably the one biggest, most important thing that lawyers can do and learn how to test those ideas, um, bounce them off of people who will listen and engage with them too. Um, If you do those things, you can start building a firm around legal solution, not just churning out hours. 
I think it's absolutely right. And I think the willingness you spoke of, that's the on-off switch right mm-hmm. there for whether a lawyer is going to be doing, whether a lawyer is going to pursue this or not. It is not that lawyers can't understand this. Every lawyer I meet is intelligent. Every lawyer I meet is hardworking. That's, that, that goes without saying. It, it, it entirely comes down to whether or not the lawyer is willing to ask him or herself, him or herself, a basic question. If I wasn't already doing things the way I'm doing them, is this how I would start doing it, right? You know, just because I've always done it this way, do I have to keep on doing it? And a lot of lawyers don't ask themselves that question. They resist asking that question. They don't want to, right? That's honestly, Sam, that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I cannot think of any lawyer who's come up to me after a presentation and said, I don't understand what you're talking about. This doesn't make any, you know, <laughs> it, this doesn't, it doesn't compute. They understand it completely. But when they come up to me, and, and, and it's half and half, right? You know, half come up and say, wow, that was awesome. You know, I'm going to go do this, or we're already trying this, and it's great. And half them come up, and, and they start giving me all the reasons why it's not going to work and why they don't want to do it. And it's like, don't do it, right? Seriously, don't. If you don't want to yeah. do this, don't. If, if, if you don't want to believe this, Right, because people believe what they want to believe. If you don't want to believe that's what's happening to the market, mm-hmm. if you don't want to believe this is the way of the future, you don't have to. You're a grown up, right? Do what you do what you feel like. But it's the ones who are interested, the ones who at least say, maybe I should honestly consider it. Just doing that alone puts you in the tiny minority of lawyers who are going to be in a position to lead the market into the era in which it's now heading very fast. So um, we have barely touched on. Uh, you know, the, the smallest portion of, of Jordan's book, Law is a Buyer's Market. Um, I have, I've had a review copy and I've most of the way through it. And I, it is a, a really good informative book. If, if you are wondering about the future of your own practice, um, if you're experiencing some of the changes, if you're curious about what we've, to learn more about what we've talked about, um, go and get it. it. It is a nuanced, intelligent, well-researched introduction um, really uh, comprehensive treatment of of this whole concept w- that we've been talking about that the, the shape of the legal market has been shifting uh, with for big firm lawyers especially managers um, it's a no-brainer uh, partners managers whatever get this um, for small firm lawyers you're gonna find a lot in it too I know at the beginning of the book Jordan in the introduction you you say you know big firm lawyers are gonna get more out of it um, but honestly um, most of the book uh, really, goes across the the size spectrum. And I think apart from things like uh, where you talk about the threat of the big four accounting firms, Mm. um, that's obviously not something small firms have to worry much about. Um, But apart from those pieces, I think uh, uh, lawyers at firms of all sizes will get a ton out of this. Well, thank you very much. Um, So go and get the book. I'll I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, I think it's really worth your time. If you've been listening to us, and I'm going to put in my own plug here, because if you've been listening to us and you're like, yes, 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 I get that. I'm trying to do that. Um, you really should consider uh, applying for an invitation to the small conference that we have been doing. Um, we're, we're scheduling our third one in, in August. The application period is open right now. If you are listening to this and it is resonating with you and you're hearing a kindred spirit in Jordan Furlong, um, then we probably need to have you at TBD Law at some point. So go to our website, lawyerist.com slash TBD Law, um, TBD as in to be determined, and uh, fill out the application. We'd love to hear from you. Jordan, thank you so much for being with us today. I I, I am resisting the impulse to just keep geeking out <laughs> with you for another hour and a half, <laughs> but I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. It's been my pleasure, Sam. Thank you very much.
Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and the Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.